Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gabia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So, hot on the heels of last week's episode on the Star Wars spinoff Andor, which we love, you can check out our episode on that, we decided to rewatch Michael Clayton, an acclaimed film by the show's creator Tony Gilroy. Starring George Clooney as a fixer for a corporate law firm, this legal thriller was nominated for numerous Oscars in 2008, telling a grimy story about an agricultural conglomerate that will do anything to cover up a deadly scandal. I should say this was a movie from 2007. Gabby has written this intro. and <laughs> It is the 2008 Oscars, but the film is from 2007. Some of us refer to the Oscars by the film year. Oh. <laughs> Oscar punditry aside, it's a very good film. This was Morgan's suggestion, because when we've been talking about Andor, she keeps kind of bringing up this movie specifically, being like, wow, you can really see the thematic origins of the stuff that Tony Gilroy is interested in and I was obviously really intrigued by this as an Andor obsessive because I watched this when it came out when we were both teens but have no real memory of it and having rewatched it great film and I completely agree yeah so I watched this probably very early 2008 with my parents because it was nominated for many academy awards and this was the second year I believe that I was watching all of the Oscar-nominated movies. We probably got this as a DVD from Netflix, would be my guess. And I remember watching it with them, and we all were kind of like, I was fine. <laughs> like, I kind of didn't totally get it. It had gotten really good reviews. I didn't think it was bad. It just didn't make a huge impression on me. And then it's a movie that has remained really beloved by viewers, critics, etc. in the 15 years since it was released. And I rewatched it during lockdown in 2020 because I was just re-watching random stuff and it had been being discussed and when I rewatched it then I was like oh this is a masterpiece <laughs> like this is a perfect movie and it was an interesting experience because usually when I rewatch stuff I saw when I was kind of in my late teens or in college I have a similar opinion of it as I did at the time even if I might appreciate new things about it the second time and this time I was just like oh I was fully not old enough to like understand yeah I mean this is a movie for fully middle-aged people everyone in this is just like gray and wearing an ugly suit and having money troubles <laughs> well and what's interesting about it and what I appreciate so much about it and I mean there are many things and we can we will talk about all of them and part of what is interesting to about watching it now is that it feels so much of a specific Hollywood moment where studios were still making movies for grown-ups. And it's not that there's anything that a teenager that would be like inappropriate for a teenager in this movie. It was totally fine. Like I was fine watching it. I just didn't really grasp the emotional depth of the film. And 2007, in retrospect, is often talked about as like one of the best years for cinema in the past few decades. It was definitely like a very thrilling year to experience as a moviegoer, as like a 17, 18 year old, because this was the year that There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men and a bunch of other amazing movies came out. And it was also a time when the indie movie, in quotes, was really being hailed as like a cultural force. But a lot of those movies, including There Will Be Blood, I can't remember about No Country off the top of my head, were actually funded and distributed by like the indie, in quotes, arms of big studios. And so 
If you look at a lot of the sort of talent behind movies that came out that year, including David Fincher, who made Zodiac, that came out that year, they've now kind of gone to television, like Tony Gilroy has with Andor. And we loved Andor. We talked about it last week. We raved about it. I think it's amazing. But it's a little bit telling that the guy who made this brilliant movie 15 years ago is now making a Star Wars show. Even if that show is great and, like, I love watching it, this was kind of the last gasp, I think, of, like, really mainstream movie culture for, like, grown-up people. I mean, Tony Gilroy has had an interesting career. So for some backstory, he was born in New York in the 50s. He's the son of a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and a writer-slash-sculptor. So he's uh, had kind of training from early on, and he's got two siblings who often work with him. There's um, John Gilroy, the editor... And then Dan Gilroy, the writer, who I think also wrote an Andor. But his first movie was the ice skating rom-com The Cutting Edge in 1992, which he was hired to do by a studio because some executive read some other rom-com that was unproduced that he wrote and was like, hey, write something about ice skating. And Tony Gilroy was like, I mean, I guess if you're paying me. (laughs) But he's best known for the Bourne Identity franchise, which according to him, he essentially made up. Um, obviously, they're adapted from an extremely popular series of books, but according to Tony Gilroy, he's like, yeah, I mean, I took the basic premise and completely reinvented it, which I mean, I'm willing to believe is true, because I don't think I ever read those books. Well, I think there are, like, dozens of them, and it's a situation where it's now, like, the guy who wrote them, in quotes, that has been impersonated officially by many people yes. writing them, <laughs> and then there's a lot more official espionage stuff going on. I think they're more Tom Clancy-ish than the movies are, and the movies are pretty... I mean, I read quite a funny interview with him where he was talking about how they never thought they were going to get a sequel, and he was just like, if I thought we were going to get another movie, I would not have killed off all those characters. I would not have killed (laughs) off Clive Owen in the first movie, because oh boy, did we need them later on, and we couldn't draw from the books, because we changed everything, and he was like, I was re-watching that scene to see if Clive Owen could have had any way to survive. Sorry for spoiling uh, the Firstborn movie. But yeah, This is his directorial debut after extensive screenwriting. And also he's like one of these people who's script doctored on dozens of blockbusters and was one of the like 25 credited writers in Armageddon. So he can really work within the system, which kind of ties into stuff we were talking about with Andor. But with this movie, he was very excited to do an original project. Um, I'll link to this interview in the show notes, but he said, at this point, it seems like I've done every conceivable kind of writing job you can do. I've come in for two days. I've come in for a week. I've come in just to talk. I've come in from the very beginning to the end. I've worked on movies where I've never seen the movie. I've been so pissed off. I've worked on movies where the director wasn't allowed to talk to me. Michael Clayton was the best experience to be able to be in complete control and to say, this is mine. And it's an extremely well-written film and very dense in terms of characterization, which I would say is like pretty rare for just watching like a mainstream thriller. Like it's it's definitely falling into a very familiar subgenre of like corporate slash legal thriller. And aesthetically it's this I mean, it's not like an ugly film, but it's like got this very kind of boring aesthetic because it's just all set in people's houses and office blocks and everyone's wearing ugly clothes. And if you see the poster for it, you're like, this could be any film, but it's so meticulously well thought out and all the characterization is so precise that it just is an incredible work. Well, it's also, it's not directed in a way where you're like, wow, that shot was really beautiful or this (laughs) set decoration is like really stunning because as you say, they're in like anonymous hotel rooms or anonymous offices or whatever. But 
it's pretty amazing. It's his the first movie he directed, although obviously he'd been on sets all the time, I would imagine, because it's incredibly precisely directed. Like, every shot is intentional and thought out, which isn't always the case with, like, a mainstream thriller. But I think this goes back to the idea that this is a movie that's actually for, like, intelligent adults who are willing to think about things while they watch a movie. And we should get into the actual plot and characters in a second. But part of what I was thinking about after finishing watching it last night was that it's actually not, the plot is actually not very complicated at all. When you like boil it down to what is actually happening. And it made me think of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in that respect, that like, once you understand that book or that movie and understand what is happening, it's actually very basic. But of course, the first time you watch it. I mean, that in particular is very confusing the first time. This is less so. There's just so much kind of happening that it can feel more convoluted or like the characters are confused. So that can be confusing. But there's just so much attention paid to the actual detailed reality of these people's lives that it can feel more complex than it actually is in terms of like the actual A to B of what the sort of conspiracy is in this case. And I think that's a sign of someone who really knows what they're doing in terms of setting up a thriller because you don't actually need like a super complex plot engine or like a bunch of reveals where you find out that someone is playing the opposite side or whatever. I mean, that can be fun, but it can get heavy really fast. You What you actually need is someone who's just like, I have a really strong central hook and I know how to write people really well. And like, yeah, there you go. And then- there's just a scenario that kind of creates this sense of inexorability. Yes. So do you want to give us a little bit of background into, or like introduction, more introduction to yeah. the plot? So the titular character, Michael Clayton, which is a very funny title because it's like, it's just this guy, like it's it's not a real person. So it's very bold to call the movie after this man. It's like any man. It's like going back <laughs> to the 19th century when novels were all called yeah. like Daniel Deronda. <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. It's also very funny, like, when you reach the end of the movie and the credits start and it says Michael Clayton, it's like, yeah, I know what the movie's called. They've said the title 47,000 times. (laughs) But yeah, so George Clooney is playing this fixer who on paper is just like a mid-level guy at this massive corporate law firm who on paper, once again, doesn't seem like he's had that impressive a career because he's been at this place for like 15 years without a promotion. But in reality, he's the person who's got this specific skill set of being able to clean up messes for a really high level clients. So the movie opens with him being called in because this rich guy has hit someone in a hit and run. And the law firm brings Michael Clayton out from where he's playing poker in like a illegal gambling ring. <laughs> And is like, you come and sort this out. So he comes in and just takes over the situation. And it's a really great establishing scene because you see the ways in which he is very controlled and expert in this scenario. And he's speaking to someone who thinks they're the person with power because it's this really rich client. But actually this guy is just flailing around and thinks that he's going to be able to solve any problem by paying for it or asking for the manager. And Michael Clayton is just like, no, I mean, you've killed someone. There's only a couple of solutions to this and they involve getting a very specific lawyer from elsewhere. There's not much else I can do here and my job is to be like the guy in charge. And you quickly understand that he is not a particularly heroic or nice person and he also has money problems due to the fact that um, 
he and his brother co-owned a restaurant that went bust. And this first section, which is essentially like a prologue, but it's set several days after the main story, ends with him driving away from this man's house and then his car explodes in a car bomb without him in it. So he gets out of his car and it gets blown up. And then it goes back to like four days earlier and we follow the story that leads up to Michael Clayton's car being blown up. Yeah, I mean, that device has become a very popular trope, especially on television, but it's popular because it can work. Definitely the main character's car getting blown up is going to get your attention. But I think what works so well about it in this case is that he's not, Gilroy isn't just wasting time by being like, ooh, something bad is going to happen at the beginning. And then like, let's jump back. He uses that first scene. It's Clooney and the brilliant actor Dennis O'Hare playing the rich asshole who's just like outraged that someone isn't catering to his every whim. And again, it's like, well, you just killed someone and drove away from There's the scene. There's a lot so. of excellent, just middle-aged white men in this who are typecast in roles you've seen them playing in 50 other movies, you know? Yeah. And so- as you just described, like we learn so much about the Michael Clayton character's personality, his job, and the world of the film, even though we might not initially realize it, which is that so much of the film is about rich people slash people with power who think that they can just do anything and then sort of frantically trying to figure out how to fix their problems. Yeah. There's this other really good quote from Tony Gilroy where he talks about just the genesis of the idea of what he wanted to do with this as a legal drama. Because while I did say it is quite conventional in some ways, it's definitely not a law show style thing. Like it's not about a guy who is practicing law. It is about the real function of a law firm. Kind of more like something you'd see in succession, but like Mm -hmm. without the jokes. (laughs) So in this interview, the interviewer says, I heard that this came out of your experiences when you were researching this movie, The Devil's Advocate. And Gilroy says, exactly. Wandering off the recce tour with the law firms, I was really struck by how unrepresented an actual law firm was on film. It's either like LA Law or like The Firm or it's The Devil's Advocate. They have that wood panelled room. It's just that no one ever goes in there and the real work is taking place in these huge backstage industrial areas with documents and people working. When you go to a law firm to shoot on location at three o'clock in the morning, it's shocking. There's three or four lights on in every floor and some poor person buried under paper. It's not pretty people and it's not a pretty atmosphere. It's really a grind and that's fertile territory for a film. And that is literally what you see first off from this law firm that he works at because the next scene in this kind of first section is all these people like frantically working in an office while a journalist calls them to try and expose what is clearly some kind of big story or scandal and it turns out that they are all working on it's like this case involving a big agricultural conglomerate called Unorth and there's a class action lawsuit from all these farmers who got cancer thanks to carcinogenic weed killer. So it's like a nasty story, but it's also like unglamorous. And this whole case has been cast into disarray because the lead attorney, who is played by the fantastic character actor Tom Wilkinson, who we will be discussing at length, he's manic depressive, he's gone off his meds and he's had a breakdown on camera in the middle of deposing one of these harmless farmers who's been fucked over by the company. So now it's Michael Clayton's turn to deal with this guy who's been arrested for taking all his clothes off in a workplace setting in the middle of this massive multi-billion dollar lawsuit. Yeah, and we learn that he has a really strong emotional connection slash relationship 
with this man whose name is Arthur. He's kind of a mentor to him. So it's not just that he's for work is like, oh, I'll take care of Yeah, I mean, he's known him for years and he's very, like, kind to him, you know. Well, and he tries to minimize that anything problematic is taking place, even though obviously this is a huge disaster. And this introduces what becomes kind of the central conflict of the movie in terms of the ideas, which is that Arthur, Tom Wilkinson, has been working on this case for, they specify how many years, I can't remember how many, but like years and years and years defending this conglomerate that is essentially evil. And the process of doing this has eaten him up from the inside. And he doesn't have very much else in his life. He's divorced. And also he's been interacting with witnesses. So he has become obsessed with this very sweet and innocent young woman played by the fantastic Merritt Weaver, who is just this very sort of naive, nice person. And he just wants to like save her. And he's really obsessed with her. He's like, oh, she's God's gift. This poor girl, if you ever met her, you'd understand. And it's like, yeah, I get it. But like, this is definitely your manic state talking, you know? (laughs) Well, and I think the writing is really smart because on the one hand, he clearly is manic and needs to be medicated. And he's gone off his medication, which is why he's now in this state. But simultaneously, he is absolutely correct that what he's doing is morally despicable and he doesn't want to be doing it anymore. So you have a number of scenes where Michael is trying to get him to go back on the meds and also just like stop, stop doing this and like ruining his career slash their job slash everything. And I think the movie is kind of asking really interesting questions about the extent to which like large scale problems of capitalism and corruption can be like mediated or treated with individual pharmacology, right? Which isn't to say, and I don't think- That's a really interesting point. I don't think the movie is suggesting that like drugs are bad and you shouldn't take them. Yeah, the movie definitely isn't being like, don't take your meds. (laughs) Like he clearly, like this guy is having a mental health episode, but- I think there is this desire amongst all these people working at this law firm that like, we just have to not think about this. And part of that is you almost just like have to be sedated in some way, right? Yeah. And it's also like the question of like, what is rational? Because the idea yes. is that, like, if you go back on your medication, you'll be thinking rationally and you will agree with us that the yes. best course of action is to make money by causing people pain. And it's like, that's not actually rational. <laughs> right. And this is a bigger question I've been thinking about recently in terms of like, we have a lot of large scale problems in the world right now. And a lot of the suggestions of treatment from governments are basically like, we'll go get therapy or go on medication. And like, I am a huge advocate for both of those things. I think they're great. But like, that's not really a solution to like a huge societal problem. And in this case, it feels like the movie is kind of poking at that too, in a way that I think is really interesting. And I think part of what's so great about Gilroy's writing is that you can Like, you definitely have to be thinking to watch this movie in terms of just following it. But I think there is so much going on below the surface in terms of, like, his ideas about bigger sociopolitical issues, which obviously is the case in Andor also. We were talking about that last week. 
And having now seen it a few times, it just keeps getting kind of like richer and richer for me in a way that is really thrilling. But in the package of a movie that's like a legal thriller, it wants to entertain you and succeeds in doing that. But also then you're like, hmm, is it bad to like aid and abet these bad corporations, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, clearly the answer is yes. I mean, on that note, we should talk about Tilda Swinton. Oh my God. Who, like, I was texting you while I was watching this being like, it's really funny that Tilda Swinton won her Oscar for this because it's one of her most aggressively normy roles. Often she's playing characters who are either very florid on a personal level or literally kind of fantasy characters because that's her brand. But in this, she is playing the new CEO of this company, Unorth. She's not the CEO, she's the legal counsel. Okay, yeah, she's she's the, well, she's a new kind of person who's like in charge and she's been brought in by her mentor who's this like older man who is very established. And kind of the interesting thing about her is that she is extraordinarily nervous and unconfident throughout all of this. So like she's very good at giving these very practice speeches, which we literally see her rehearsing behind the scenes when she's taking this job on. But she's famously sweating buckets through this film and she has like no strong sense of identity basically and I think that's like a really interesting thing that's a really interesting angle on a character whose entire purpose is being really powerful like on a macro scale because she's in charge of this massive lawsuit and also being a representative of this capitalist evil because she's really not a traditional supervillain she's actually quite weak because she's just plugged into this system and I definitely think there's a subtext of her being hired as a sort of glass cliff situation where companies know that either the company's about to go bust or there's a big scandal in the way and they hire a female CEO or like upper level executive who quote unquote takes over and then takes the fall and that's not something they comment on explicitly at all but it definitely feels telling that just as this lawsuit is about to go off the rails even though it goes off the rails for unpredictable reasons she's put in charge and she's suddenly in this position where she's like, what the fuck do I do? And at this point, it's slightly unclear at the beginning whether she even knows like everything that's going on, but clearly she must do because obviously it's the lawsuit that she's working on, you know, but it becomes very clear quite early on that she is not going to be changing her ways because once she gets her hands on one of these memos that like reveals all of the carcinogenic stuff that they were putting in this weed killer and killing people with, her immediate responses are always like, how do we cover this up? I mean, the role of someone who is the legal counsel, the head legal counsel at an institution like this, corporation like this, I think is really interesting in conjunction with the fact that all of these other characters are also lawyers, right? Because it's not as though she founded this company or invented this product. No, she has no loyalty to it. Right. Her role is merely to shepherd this settlement through. But as a result, she's almost emptier and like more unsettling than someone who's like, I invented this cancer weed killer, but like, by God, I'm going to make some money off of it. Right? Like, Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like this thing you see in succession, which obviously isn't a new idea, but I always find interesting where... It's these people who have completely sold their soul to be as rich and successful in this highly specific corporate environment as possible, but they're not having any fun at all. Like you don't see these people enjoying their money. And as in Andor, money problems are the kind of ruling conceit of this whole thing. Like, you know, the people who are in the lawsuit are trying to get money from Unorth, Unorth is trying to save money, and Michael Clayton 
is massively in debt and is trying to get a lot of money very fast to pay off this restaurant. And also he has a gambling problem. But like with him, you kind of feel like he has normal person money problems. You know, it's like if he had a bunch of money, he'd probably be doing something relatively good with it if he didn't just gamble it away. You know, he'd be buying stuff for his son or going on vacation, maybe. But with her, it's like, literally, what are you doing? You are not having any fun with your life and you must be paid a fuck ton of money. And you've just completely lost your human spirit. We don't get a ton of personal background on any of the characters except Michael, but we get a little bit with Arthur and then the head of the law firm is played by Sidney Pollack. We should talk about him a little bit more in a second. But like, I think there are interesting parallels between him and the Tilda Swinton character. But um, we like see him at home and he clearly has, like he has a wife and kids and he lives in a fancy house, but we don't get a lot of information about them aside from the fact that they exist. But the fact that we know literally nothing about her, her name's Karen, the Tilda Swinton character, I think is so smart because she is this completely just shell of a person. And I think often you want to know sort of what's motivating a character, of course, but sometimes people are just evil because they've been corrupted by yeah, the world, Yeah, in like right? a really like, unfun way. She's just yeah. been suborned to the concept of legal success. And so much of what, I mean, the movie's central question is basically, at what point are you willing to sacrifice your own material comfort and social prestige to do what is morally correct? And she obviously is on the complete one end of that question, right? Where she's not thinking about that at all. And the Pollock character, I think, is really interesting because his demeanor is quite warm. He can be stern. He's obviously in charge of this law firm, but he obviously, you know, cares about his employees. There are some good scenes between him and Clooney. He has a family, right? But he knows everything that's going on with this company and this lawsuit. Like, he knows about all the cancer stuff, which is supposed to be kind of like a secret And he lives in a palace. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's an example of someone who maybe, in terms of, like, your personal one-on-one interactions with them, isn't going to be horrible to you. But morally speaking, there's not really any there there either. Right? Which I think it's important to have sort of both options right someone who's just like oh you are so unsettling and bad and like (laughs) this is really awful versus someone who seems much more appealing but isn't really ultimately any better and then of course we have the arthur situation yeah which i think we should talk about a little bit more probably yeah i mean both sidney pollock's character who's the lawyer boss and Tilda Swinton, the total villain. Like, they're all treating Arthur as a problem that needs to be solved as quickly as possible, you know? And the writing for him is so smart. Like, the way he's talking is very much he's in a manic state. Like, he's talking about how he's seeing the world clearly for the first time, and he's, like, full of excitement about everything, and is so kind of emotionally open and making these wild decisions. Like, when Clayton first gets him out of jail he hustles him off to some hotel room 
where he just like starts talking to Michael Clayton's young son on the phone and like this son is so good like we were both talking about this after watching the movie he's probably like eight or nine or something and he's obsessed with some fantasy novel that he's talking about incessantly in a way that makes it very clear that Tony Gilroy is used to speaking to some child who's obsessed <laughs> with fantasy novels and also it's like I kept being like this kind of sounds like he's reading a and d manual or something and then when they reveal the book it's this massive like leather bound tome which I really enjoyed because it's like yeah eight-year-olds do read that stuff <laughs> But so he's describing all this stuff with like, oh, you know, they can't trust anyone's thoughts because they're all sharing the same dreamscape and this stuff. And of course, this guy who's having a manic episode at the other end of the phone is like, yeah, we we can't trust anyone else and we don't know what the right thing is to do. And this becomes his inspiration to break out of this hotel room and go on the run back to his apartment in New York. And so that's when things really get chaotic because obviously everyone is looking for this guy and I mean, we are kind of getting more into spoiler territory here, but basically what happens is while Michael is trying to track him down by going to his apartment and stuff, Tilda Swinton has told one of her underlings to find a way to sort this out in a way that makes it very clear she wants this man to be assassinated. Once again, in like the least cool way possible. Like she doesn't like it, but not in a moral way. She's just like, oh, this is like a risky solution. But she has no moral qualms. So we see these two guys one of whom is played by Terry Serpico, who has played 12 million hitmen in his career, break into Arthur's apartment and just knock him out and shoot him between the toes with a drug that kills him. And it's, you know, it's assumed to be a suicide. And the next scene is just like his wake with Michael Clayton and his boss and all these other people there. But of course, it becomes a more suspicious death if you have been speaking to him a couple of days before and saw that he was really on the up. And also the fact that he seemed like he wanted to go ahead with moving against this lawsuit. They'd found evidence that he was actively going to start working against you North and was going to be working to help these farmers who are kind of represented by Merritt Weaver's character, who he invites to come with him to New York. One tiny detail I really liked is like when they open the refrigerator in his apartment, there's like a bottle of champagne and two glasses there. And there's this obvious kind of romantic undertone to this relationship, but it's executed in a way that I thought worked really well because obviously his behaviour is inappropriate and kind of creepy, but he doesn't seem remotely threatening because there is this sort of relationship you do sometimes see from lonely and emotionally vulnerable older men where they get really attached to some young woman who almost reminds them of their daughter and they're not necessarily going to try and like fuck them or prey on them in any way but it's still emotionally unwell and she is kind of too naive to really pick up on this in any explicit way I think. Yeah and also it's just like I mean, she's desperate for help, too. Well, exactly, right? And the, like, fancy New York lawyer is paying attention to her, which is both emotionally validating and also her family members have died as a result of this thing. So again, like, you just want someone to be paying attention to the fact that this horrible thing has happened and hopefully help you. Um, And he always sort of frames... We don't see a ton of them talking to each other, but he's framing it in terms of the lawsuit as opposed to just being like, come marry me, which you don't get Yeah, the yeah, sense he's that like, I want, want to, he wants to save her. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, well, I think everyone in this movie is great. We talked about the casting on Andor being so good. And I think it totally is in this movie too, in the sense that everyone feels really right for the part. And most of the actors, including many sort of like small bit parts, Many of the actors in the small bit parts I had definitely never seen in anything before. They just seem like really normal people. I assume they're kind of New York theater types. And that gives it that 
feel like he was talking about in the interview quote you read of like the law firms are just like not sexy places <laughs> like you know but i think that tom wilkinson is just so amazing in this movie because he has to do the manic verbal dexterity thing in a way that feels authentic as opposed to someone performing that and i think he totally pulls it off while also having this emotional naivete almost because he is in this sort of childlike emotionally extreme state but he's also a brilliant like genius lawyer and so at certain moments that kind of comes out too yeah that was my favorite moment too like when he's holding the bread (laughs) oh my god well there's an amazing scene in this where he's holding like I don't know, 15 baguettes, which is like an image that has been burned onto my brain for 15 years. And he's going back to his apartment and Michael's been like staking him out and he finally sort of corners him. And the law firm has been like, well, why can't we just have this guy institutionalized? And it's a similar moment to the one at the beginning of the movie where the rich guy's like, why can't you just solve my problem, right? It's like, well, actually, the law does exist. So of course, there are many instances where people can get around it. But In this case, it's like you have this genius lawyer who knows everything about, you know, criminal statutes, etc. to do with who can and cannot be institutionalized against their will as an adult in the state of New York. And he's just like, yeah, good luck with that. Like, you're not going to be because like, yeah, Arthur is basically just like reels off all these reasons why Michael Clayton can't have him committed and also ends it with you do not want to face me in court. And you're like, yeah this guy is still a genius because there's a lot of lesser films that have a much more simplistic and offensive kind of attitude toward this kind of mental health crisis where they act like it's like, oh, you're really a different person. And like, suddenly you've lost all your faculties. And it's like, yeah, he's acting in a really volatile way and he's making decisions that he wouldn't normally make, but it doesn't mean that he's forgotten all of his legal knowledge, you know? Right. That characterization is really sophisticated and also the relationship between them is really sophisticated we haven't actually talked about the michael clayton character too much but a lot of what is sort of driving his life in a practical way and then also bothering him is that he is the fixer for this firm as opposed to being sort of like a real quote-unquote attorney and we sense that he has had this quite positive relationship with arthur over the course of their working lives together and in that scene arthur's basically like you're not a real lawyer so like fuck off basically and by this point in the movie we understand that that's like the worst insult to come from the worst person for this guy right and that feeling of just like what am i doing with my life and like what is the purpose of all of this is obviously part of what drives him to start thinking about what the actual right thing to do is in the case of i mean He's in this situation where he has this really impressive skill set and there's this scene where he talks to his boss, Sidney Pollack, where he's like, I need more security to my career. And it turns out the law firm is going to go through a merger, which means that essentially Michael Clayton might get lost in the cracks because on paper he doesn't look impressive. And it's very obvious in this film that Tony Gilroy is heavily influenced by thrillers from the 1970s and 80s. He's talked about this a lot just in his work in general. It's very apparent from his work and it's also not unusual for a boomer man. (laughs) Um, But that particular scene reminded me of Thief, which we did an episode on a few months ago, which is Michael Mann's first and one of his greatest movies. It's a heist thriller and it's about a safe cracker. And kind of the premise of that is the main character is this 
extremely skilled working class technician who has amazing skills at safe cracking and is working as a criminal. And he ends up in this professional relationship with someone who is in a managerial position. It's like a guy who's a gangster and is like, I can get you these great jobs, but in return, you are my employee, which is putting this very formalized relationship on something which is literally an illegal job. And it becomes this class clash. And in this they definitely go into Michael Clayton's backstory intentionally to make it clear that he has a working class background, which is an interesting detail. Like they talk about how, you know, he has working class parents, but then like went to college, went to law school and was successful and all this sort of stuff. But that may not be the case for a lot of the other people in this film. And also he is in this professional position where he is essentially the technician and he's often referring to himself as like, I'm the bag man. You know, he doesn't see himself as being in these higher echelons of this law firm. So there's this whole class element to it as well, which once again, is definitely familiar in Andor, especially with the main character and his relationship with like his spy boss guy, Luthen Rail. Yeah, and he refers to himself as the janitor a lot. And yes. we only really see one, aside from that early um, car crash or hit and run scene, we get one sort of montage scene of him at work talking, like taking phone calls from all these different people and cashing in favors and you know, bribing people and whatever. And it's just so boring <laughs> and demeaning. And he clearly is just finds it meaningless, which I think part of what the sort of like big picture argument Gilroy is making about the law firm is that like, that's not a unique situation for people working in a place like this. People watch like law and cop shows and are like, oh, I'm going to become you know, an ADA, and then argue eloquently in front and of juries like all the time. it's like the most boring job. <laughs> and like, people are just doing contracts all the time. But he doesn't even have the sort of prestige of being able to say he's a partner at this law firm or whatever. And obviously is not respected by the other people who work there, even though he's providing them a really, really valuable service. And um, simultaneously is having all these money problems because he invested in a bar with one of his brothers and his brother was having addiction issues and relapsed. And then like they lost all the money on the bar and he had to auction off the, you know, furnishings and he's still short tens of thousands of dollars. And there's just like a sort of quotidian dullness, I think, to what's going on in his life, even though the movie is a thriller and, is quite fast paced and it's not like you're bored, but you just get this. And even though he's George Clooney and <laughs> and we do need to talk about the George Clooney factor, but like you just get the sense of him being middle-aged and just like, Oh my God, like this is so yeah tedious. It definitely has this sort of circular relationship of feeding into the reasons why he decides to do the right thing. Like, you know, yeah. he is the person who's beginning to pursue what happened to Arthur while the bad guys would much rather just sweep it under the rug, right? And he is making decisions that are more and more risky to himself just to get into the kind of final spoiler zone. So it's like, simultaneously, he doesn't have the financial and career security of the other characters. But also part of the reason why he's not happy in his career is because he fundamentally still has like some hints of morals that someone like Tilda Swinton doesn't have. So he's doing bad stuff, but he is like openly kind of scornful of this guy he's speaking to at the beginning of the film. Like he isn't like, wow, I need to help this person or I'm happy I'm doing a good job. He's just like, this is drudgery. And there is a certain appeal to being able to do something that has a purpose, which is investigating what happened to Arthur. And so 
the final act of the film is a very sort of classic confrontation thing where we lead up to the point where the car bombing happens. So it turns out that that has been the same hitmen that killed Arthur and they target him because he is getting too close to the truth. And also Arthur had, during one of his episodes, photocopied millions of copies of this report that reveals all the stuff that happened with this carcinogenic weed killer. And that means that this information is now very close to being out there. So they think that Michael Clayton is a loose end, but because he survives this car bombing, he's able to go and confront Tilda Swenson's character in this final sequence that is just very cool and powerful and well articulated. Well, and everyone thinks they're both dead. Meeting him and Arthur. Yes, everyone thinks that Michael Clayton's dead. So he just shows up. This is one of the peak George Clooney moments in the film. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to sort of talk a bit about Clooney, which we haven't really done, I feel like we haven't praised Tilda enough either in terms of the actual performance, because she's... She's amazing. She's so good. She's doing a voice. Her mannerisms are so distinctive. They've thought really carefully about all her props and appearance and like her costumes because she's always kind of putting on her clothes and sweating through her clothes and it's always really bland stuff, you know? Well, and she's someone, as you were saying, we think of as this sort of noted eccentric because she is. And it's not that she hasn't played unpleasant characters before or since. I mean, obviously, Snowpiercer comes to mind, but that character is also, like, mega over the top. And in this, it's like she's drained herself of everything that is charismatic or beguiling about herself. She's really boring and off-putting and not particularly nice to look at because of all the stuff they've done with, like, her makeup and her clothes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she's obviously still incredibly watchable, but in a sort of in a bad way morbid way <laughs> and i saw her at a q a for snowpiercer years ago and it was the best celebrity q a i've ever been to normally i can imagine like, normally when you go to those you're like oh this person seems interesting or like oh this person seems bad and obviously they're always performing if you don't know how authentic any of that is but she was the only person i've ever seen who i was just like you are exactly what i hoped you would be like she was so radiant the curator doing the Q&A was fully starstruck, which never happens. She just walked out with the rabble through the lobby and was just chatting to people. Like, everyone was just like, oh my god, you're amazing. And um, it's just so amazing to me that she could then do this and be like, I'm just gonna suck so much. <laughs> like, I get that, that that's what acting is, but I think she's incredible. Um, And it is very, very cool that she won an Oscar for this. The fact that Tilda Swinton has an Oscar period is wild, but the fact that she won it for this movie is just, like, kind of hilarious. She accepted the award and, like, compared the actual Oscar to, like, George Clooney in his bat suit on stage. An iconic woman. But Clooney, he was basically, along with Brad Pitt, thumbs down, like, the two of them were basically the first people I kind of understood as movie stars growing up. Yeah, I mean, I suspect I may have watch this for Clooney not in the sense that like I was into Clooney but Ocean's Eleven was so big when we were teenagers like I can't imagine at the age of 17 or whatever I was like wow I really want to watch a corporate thriller well he was I was thinking about this again last night after I finished watching the movie and this was basically I mean this was the peak of his career I think this is by far the best yeah. movie I mean, and performance. He's kind of he like did. Angelina Jolie, he's an extremely beloved hot actor who's really active, where also most of his movies aren't very good. <laughs> well, but he had a period where that wasn't so much the oh, case. Yeah, I mean, and it's for sure. now that he just kinda 
gave up, I think, because the year before this, he made Good Night and Good Luck. That gets nominated for a ton of Oscars. It gives him the delusion that, that he's- I that too. God, I really, I really was watching the Clooney movies yeah. were ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah. It gives him the delusion that he's good at directing, which he's not. And that has unfortunately occupied much of the last decade of his career. I mean, that movie is very well directed and very good, but- um. He also wins the Oscar that year for Siriana for actor and supporting role, clearly as a them being like, well, we can't give you best director or whatever, but like, we want to give you an Oscar. That was the year that The Departed came out and like, it wasn't going to happen for him, but they wanted to give him an Oscar. They give it to him for Siriana, which is, I don't remember at all. I did see that one. It's classic. Like he got fat and grew a beard and they were like, you got ugly. Congratulations. Next year is this. He gets nominated for an Oscar again, loses to... Daniel Day-Lewis for There Will Be Blood. What are you going to do? Yeah. He does a couple movies with the Coens around this time, including Burn After Reading, which was kind of like an afterthought because they just won the Oscar, but it made a lot of money. He gets nominated for lead actor again in, I want to say 2009 for Up in the Air. So he was just like everywhere and nominated for a ton of Oscars in like a five-year span. And then he kind of was just like, I'm tired. Like, <laughs> Which, you know what? That's fair. He obviously had kids. I hope he's spending lots of time with his kids. But it's not like he's fully retired. It's He's just like occasionally making... He's got retired vibes. Yeah, he really does. But watching this so strongly reminded me of when he was like the biggest movie star in the world. Because this is a perfect example of a movie where he's doing real acting, not just like coasting on his charisma. But it also makes such good use of the like yeah. Movie I mean, it's definitely a situation him. where he doesn't have a lot of range. But if he has the correct role, he's really good. So you yeah. either have a role where it's like it's light and he's really charming, like Ocean's Eleven or whatever, which is his biggest movies, or you have a film where it's a character that's specifically kind of catering to his personality and skills. And because there's so few movies happening now that aren't either like a really intensive emotional drama for Oscars or a big silly blockbuster, they've kind of nudged him out of that niche where he could be making good films. Yeah. I mean, he traditionally would do sort of like, I'm kind of suave and charming, but I have some pathos. Or he would do like full on comedy idiot Yeah, with the Coens. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so wonderful about this film is that it has qualities of the like, I'm an expert dude and I have some charm, but he's way more depressed than yeah. like normally in, is in those roles. But he gets to give all of these like speeches that are so riveting to watch, but that don't feel like they're implausible given the circumstances because he used to be a court attorney. So this is a situation where like, yeah, he probably could pull that out at any time, right? Like this final confrontation. Right. And so he basically shows up. She thinks he's dead. When she sees him, she's just like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being visited by the ghosts of my sins. <laughs> yeah. And he is like, you're so fucking stupid. I can't believe you tried to kill me. Like, you have to pay me off. I'm not some, like, righteous person. I'm the janitor. And exerts a promise from her that she's going to pay him millions and millions of dollars. Which... She is sort of tries to not agree, and he's like, no, no, no. And there's no sense of him having any 
hesitance or doubt, and I don't even mean emotionally or morally, I just mean, like, (laughs) practically speaking, in any of the dialogue here. He's extremely confident. Yeah. Great classic line where she tries to sort of bring him down, and he says, do I look like I'm negotiating? And she's like, ugh. But- That also, even though it's kind of superhuman, totally makes sense given where the character is, right? Which is like, fuck it. He's got to the end of his rope. Like, someone's just tried to murder him. He's just like, fuck you. And also, he has years of experience strong-arming people. Right. So she agrees to the bribe, and it turns out he's been recording her to get her on tape, allowing herself to be extorted. And literally the second she says it, there's like no pause of him being like, I'm gonna drop this dramatic bombshell on you. He just literally immediately says, you're so fucked. And I was just like, oh! It's (laughs) such a good line. (laughs) No poetry whatsoever. You're so fucked. (laughs) And the look on her face. I mean, she literally just collapses once she realizes that she's done with, which is a perfect... She's just nothing. There's no person inside. Yeah. And ordinarily, one has relatively little respect for a serious film that ends with the police showing up and solving everything because it ends with the police showing up and arresting her and so forth. But there's enough darkness to this ending that it works because the final shot is this really long shot as the credits roll where he's just like sitting in a taxi. He just gives the taxi driver 50 bucks and is like, drive. And the camera is just lingering on George Clooney looking miserable and shell-shocked and it's like he's done this huge thing it's the most impactful thing he's done in his life and also like his career is over who the fuck knows what's happening with his future you know yeah and i think emotionally the ending plays because of what you've just said but it gilroy is also smart enough to have set up all of the pieces so that he has a brother who's a detective and we see multiple scenes of them interacting and having these he gets favors from him and they have these sort of tiffs. And so his brother is with the police who show up at the end. And it makes sense both emotionally that like they've kind of been talking off screen and have reconciled a bit. And also practically, it's not like he just showed up at a random precinct and was like, I have a, <laughs> I have yeah. a case for you to solve. Like he went to his brother and we've already seen that the fact that he has that connection means that he can kind of get favors from the cops, right? And just the movie is, it's smart enough to allow there to be related to the central plot, but obviously aren't doing a lot practically speaking but by and large every little detail sort of like ties in to the plot that gets you to that ending in such a like compact and brilliant way without the characters ever feeling like they're not acting in a realistic manner yeah i i just think as like a writing accomplishment it's incredible but also everything else is great too My heart was like pounding as I was watching that last scene last night. And admittedly, I have long COVID. So it doesn't take that much to get my heart pounding. But still, I was like, this (laughs) is thrilling. Like, and I've seen it before. Like, I knew what was going to happen. But I was just like, my God, cinema. (laughs) I would just say if you've listened to this whole thing without having seen the movie, or if you saw it many years ago, like us and haven't watched it in a while, um, definitely rewatch it. It's so good. It felt like a good excuse to do this one because Andor is getting so much attention. And if you're into that show, definitely like watching this movie, I think will be interesting. But also it's just like worth, it's worth seeing independently. Um, Great movie. 
yeah, so tune in uh, soon in the next week or two weeks, depending on health, <laughs> for an episode which we will announce on our social media. Yeah, um, in normal circumstances, we would be, you know, checking out all the, the new titles this time of year, but I'm not leaving my apartment, so we will find something. Yeah, one of our upcoming episodes, long awaited, will be on the Amazon TV show Patriot, but I think having two grimy corporate white guy episodes in a row would be too much, so <laughs> maybe the week after next. Yes, but you can find updates about that on our Instagram which is Overinvested Pod, which I am running. I'm having fun finding photos of old movie stars to put up there. I put up a picture of Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro on vacation today because it's uh, Marty's birthday. Just an, an enjoyable time. Our Twitter still exists at Overinvested Pod, but by the time you're listening to this, I don't know if Twitter will still exist. So. Yeah, it'll be an interesting artifact to listen back to this week and last week's episode in a couple of months to see if our predictions were correct. As of now, I believe Elon Musk has laid off 90% of his engineering team, so I'm intrigued by that prospect. Yeah, I'm not optimistic about the survival of Twitter, but again, as of this moment, you can find us there. Also, of course, our Patreon is patreon.com slash over... Patreon.com slash Overinvested Podcast. We really, really appreciate all of your support there. We will have a bonus episode coming up at some point in the next few weeks. The last one was about book recommendations. We always have a lot of fun doing those. But yeah, there will be more at some point soon. And in the meantime, Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, you can find all my Andor stuff on the Daily Dot, which recently I did like a little listicle, but in a good way of movie recommendations that includes this film uh, tying into the show. And also you can find me on Tumblr and Letterboxd at Hello Taylor. Yes, and you can find me on Letterboxd at ML Davies. You can find me on Instagram at Morgan Lee Davies. And Aside from our Instagram and Twitter, uh, the podcast is on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Bye.